Well, friends, can I uh, bid everybody a very warm welcome to uh, our uh, seminar. I'd like to, uh, to thank InterServe for organising it and taking the initiative and giving us all this opportunity and indeed for supporting the prayer breakfast as a sponsor uh, over a number of years um, as well. For those who, uh, who don't know, and I imagine pretty much everybody does, but uh, InterServe is a, a long-established Christian missions organisation today with a thousand workers in 35 countries, including a number uh, in, uh, in, in Great Britain. Um, I'm uh, Stephen Timms, uh, Chair of the Prayer Breakfast, which I imagine most of you would just have been uh, at. Let me just make a, a few points from the Chair in opening before I introduce the, uh, uh, the two contributors to uh, the seminar. Um, I'm a Christian. Uh, when I was a student a long time ago, I spent all my spare time at university on Christian Union uh, activity. And I did wonder, when I left university, now 35 years uh, ago, and went to live in what is now my constituency in the East End of London and joined the Labour Party, I, I wondered what the, uh, the various uh, enthusiastic uh, left-wingers who were uh, there at the time, and of course many people of faiths other than the Christian faith, what they would all make of a Holy Joe like me. Um, I think it was a particularly pressing question for, in my mind, about what uh, Muslims in the area would think of somebody like me. I, I didn't know Muslims uh, before that time, but about 30% of my constituents in East Ham are Muslims, and we have the lowest percentage in the country, according to the latest census in our borough, the borough of Newham, the lowest percentage in the country of people... Uh, saying to the census, I am a Christian, uh, less, than, uh, less than 50%. And I think my experience of what I found was best summed up um, by my uh, discussions um, uh, with Muslims around the time when I was selected to be the parliamentary candidate. Um, my predecessor as MP died when I was uh, leader of the council. And I, I'd worked previously at that time, we're talking now about 20 years ago, um, I'd worked as chair of the planning committee with the Alliance of Newham Muslim Associations. And they'd campaigned for Muslim burial space in our part of London, somewhere where people who were Muslims and who died could be decently buried without having to have body flown back to Pakistan, which many were doing at the time. I thought that was a very reasonable uh, request and that it was in the interest of everybody that everyone living in the community should feel they were properly at home and uh, you know, could, be, could be decently uh, buried. Um, so I, I was, was uh, sometime after that, was considering whether to run. Our MP had died. There was a vacancy. Uh, and the first person to call and urge me to run was the chair of the Alliance of New and Muslim Associations. And his argument to me was this, you believe in God, we believe in God, we think you should go for this job. Um, I, I, I made the point that he was the first person to call me 
to urge me to run. In fact, he was the only person who <laughs> urged me to run. And, and that support was decisive in the selection that uh, followed. So for that reason, I guess I've got a very clear vested interest in the view that Christians and Muslims can work uh, effectively and successfully together. Because that has been my uh, experience. Now, that is not, of course, to say that we agree about everything or that we believe the same things. But my experience has been that there is uh, in our faiths a sound basis for working together. Not to say it's all plain sailing. A number of people will probably remember um, that uh, four years ago I was stabbed um, in my constituency surgery by a, a young woman, a very bright young woman, Roshnara Chowdhury, who disagreed, uh, as many of my constituents did, with the way I voted when we had the debate in Parliament about whether to take military action in Iraq. That was in, in 2003. Um, and she thought, in what she was doing, that she was doing her Islamic uh, duty but I'm pleased to say there don't appear to be any lasting effects of that um, misadventure. But for me, the most abiding memory of that period was the scores of messages, probably hundreds of messages that I had subsequently, quite a lot from Christians, uh, many from Muslims, including a lot from Muslims saying, we are praying for you for a speedy recovery. And that was an experience I hadn't previously had. And, and so... Uh, that experience left me with a very positive view about the, the contribution of Muslims in our um, society. Um, a lot of people think that a society like ours, where people hold many different religions, um, is inevitably going to be very fragmented. That it couldn't be cohesive in the way that you know, traditional English towns we think of being, because everybody there was a Christian. But I think actually that's a wrong conclusion to draw, because the community I represent, which is certainly very diverse uh, in faith terms, um, we actually describe the borough of Newham as the most diverse community on the planet. I don't know if that's true, but it certainly is very, very uh, diverse. But it often strikes me as quite a cohesive community. Um, and actually, um, that cohesiveness, I think, has to do with the high level of faith allegiance, if you like, um, in the uh, community. I, I think uh, it works like this. And by the way, I mentioned the point that, you know, according to the census, we've got the lowest level of people saying, I'm a Christian in the country. We've also got the lowest level of people saying, I don't have a faith uh, in the country. And I think it works like this. If people belong to a church or a mosque, temple or a synagogue, and that institution is clearly seen as part of the local community, and people like me have a big responsibility in this to ensure where we can that that is the case, then belonging to that institution extends to a sense of belonging to the community. It seems to me that fragmentation doesn't result from people belonging to lots of different things, and actually if you think about that classically cohesive English town, it wasn't the case that everybody belonged to the same institution, they were belonging to lots of different institutions, there was plenty of animosity between them frequently um, as well, albeit with a, you know, a narrower range of uh, beliefs. 
But it seems to me that fragmentation, which we're right to be worried about, is the result when people don't belong to anything at all. That's the big problem, I think, that uh, we are confronting um, today. Um, I'm delighted to welcome the two speakers who are going to be uh, addressing uh, us uh, this morning. Uh, Philip Lewis, on my left, Dr. Philip Lewis, is the principal of Bradford Churches for Dialogue and Diversity. He teaches modules on Islam in the West and religious conflict and peacemaking on uh, Bradford University's very well-known peace studies course. He spent six years in Pakistan studying Islam and Christian-Muslim relations, uh, written a number of uh, books, including, uh, in 2007, Young British and, uh, and, and Muslim. Um, I've got one or two of his books on my bookshelf, uh, and we're all looking forward to hearing from him in just a moment. And then on my right uh, is Dr. Abdullah Sahin. He's the head of research and senior lecturer in Islamic studies and education at the University of Birmingham. Uh, he studied at Ankara as well as uh, Birmingham. He's interested in uh, learning and teaching of Islam in secular, culturally and religiously plural European societies. Uh, and he's done some particularly interesting work studying the formation of religious identity amongst British Muslim uh, young people. So what I'm going to ask is for our two speakers to make their introductory contribution, and then we can have some uh, discussion, and we'll need to be finished by, uh, by, by, by 10.15. Um, so I'm not sure <coughs> which of you is likely to go first, but Dr Lewis seems to be the preferred candidate. So. Okay, um, it's great to be here, actually. I'm delighted so many of you have sort of stayed. Um, what, what we're going to do today is a kind of duet really. And so Abdullah is going to introduce me, and I'm going to introduce him. So, so I'll introduce him in a moment. What I hope to get out of today, what I hope you will get out of today, is an understanding of religious complexity within the Muslim community. Most of you are here, I suspect, are Christians, or understand the Christian tradition. Most of you probably do not understand the Islamic tradition in the same way. So I'm assuming that. Um, and so, in a way, this is an exercise where I talk to my students in peace studies of religious literacy for, for legislators and for policymakers. Enormously important, an exercise in religious literacy. Secondly, I hope to help you understand, or Abdullah will help you understand, some of the complexity Muslims have, the difficulties in managing their own religious diversity. There isn't an ecumenical movement in Islam. That's terribly important. So why is that difficult to manage their own religious diversity? And I see this from my, the fastnesses of Bradford, where I've worked for 30 years. Muslims find it enormously difficult to, in a way, talk about their own religious diversity. Why is that? Secondly, I hope to reflect on the issue of religious authority. We know in the Church of England we have, we have uh, Justin Welby as archbishop, the Catholic Church has cardinals. Most of our churches have a certain hierarchy. Some are looser than others. But there, there are particular issues and difficulties for Muslims in the West in terms of authority. And I hope Abdullah will help us understand that. But then a third issue, I think, of enormous moment, which most of us do not understand, is Islamic, the Islamic religious tradition, unlike the Christian tradition, its formative period is a context of power and dominance. Islamic religious disciplines emerge from the context of power and dominance and develop within an expanding empire. 
how then do you adapt that to a context of relative powerlessness and minorities? And then the final question, and here I think Abdullah is one of the most creative Muslim thinkers to spare his blushes in Britain, deeply concerned about what passes for religious leadership in, in, in British society for Muslims. There's a crisis in religious leadership across the Muslim world. Now, instead of bemoaning that fact, my friend understands that he's trying to develop models of, you know, of creative religious leadership training in Islamic seminaries. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about some of the positives. But, uh, but if we rush to the positives and bypass those difficult issues, we don't understand our context and why we, this is a long game for Christians and Muslims to begin to learn to live well together with their differences, as, as Archbishop was talking this morning about how Christians live well with their differences. That's difficult enough. And I suspect it's even more difficult for Muslims <laughs> when it's Christians and Muslims. So that's the game plan. And I just wanted to just commend Abdullah to you. We were going to introduce each other. Why I thought he was so important for you is we're talking about global Christianity, global Islam, and social cohesion. And he himself embodies that diversity. He's a Turkish scholar who specialised on Islam in Britain and therefore researched the biggest community in this country, young Pakistanis, a poor community in terms of pecking order, but has also done similar research in Kuwait, a rich country. So in a way he moves across three or four worlds. Pakistan, he understands Pakistan, Pakistani Islam, the Turkish world of Turkish Islam, which is quite different, the world of the Arab world in Kuwait and the British scene. So I think he's uniquely in a way equipped to help us understand some of these complex issues. Enough of my introduction. Thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I'm very privileged as well to be with you today, and thank you for the kind invitation. Uh, I'm really uh, very um, thankful that actually this discussion is taking place within the frame of a prayer, in which obviously we are trying to reach you know, to the divine, as well as to reach to each other. So I, I very much appreciate this kind invitation to be part of this uh, uh, today's reflections. Do you want us to stand up? I was trying to be polite actually. I was saying that I was actually very privileged to be with you today and the fact that we are addressing these issues, you know, global peace, faith, Islam and Christianism relations within the context of a prayer, which I thought that probably is very poignant and meaningful. Uh, so that I'm very grateful that we have a space for a, a Muslim voice at least to be part of this prayer. Um, now Phil and I myself really over the 10 years we've been friends and I've always felt in Phil his deep, you know, committed Christian faith um, has actually in many ways inspired him to understand what goes on within actually the Christian Muslim communities that are actually his neighbors basically. So I always felt that through his research and findings, here we have a very objective voice trying to understand the complexity and dynamics within diverse Muslim communities in Britain. And also, most crucially, to actually to become part of the solution in a way is not, not good to simply pinpoint the problems, but obviously as much more experienced faith community obviously in, in Britain, to, in a sense to share your experience and, and, and tell us ways forward basically. We might be able to benefit in a way that to resolve some of these complex issues. Uh, so therefore, I, I really am inspired by his continuing support and by his really uh, encouragement to 
over many years to not only my work, but also host of other Muslim young researchers and scholars in, in Britain. And I feel that he doesn't shy away from actually raising some of the very uncomfortable, uh, complex issues that obviously we are experiencing within the uh, Muslim community. Uh, and I would like to comment on the fact that, or in fact acknowledge, my own experiences of global Islam tells me that Islam, today's world, is finding itself in a very uncomfortable situation. So Muslim faith has difficulty maturely expressing itself within the context of 21st century world. I don't think this is undermining my faith to say this. It is, in a sense, a constructive way forward to address some of the issues that are actually inevitably related to the Islamic faith in the modern world. So there is uncomfortableness. But we have to understand what are the dynamics behind it. And often what I feel is, is this lack of reflective space to actually understand the dynamics behind this uncomfortable context. We are all too familiar with just very recent event in, in the UK about the Trojan horse, how quickly the issue became polarized, us and them. And in fact, it has not led the Muslim community overall to self-reflect. They kind of depicted the issue with an Islamophobic reaction, again, picking on Muslims. And obviously the outside world couldn't really understand the complexity of the reasons behind these issues and put forward a constructive, maybe a long-term educational policy to resolve this issue. So in other words, we are really desperate to have uh, some reflective spaces where we genuinely try to understand the dynamics behind these issues and, and, and problems. Now, one of the key issues we mentioned about Islam is the fact that in its very inception, historically, Islam has always been really a dominant, politically dominant force. In the 21st century, particularly Islam in Western Europe, in the West, is a minority faith. And it's very difficult for Muslims to come to terms of being a minority. In other words, we have a theology of superiority guiding your imagination, while the fact is you are living in a very multicultural minority context. We haven't got a new theology being able to actually understand the situation. Neither our religious authority and religious leadership are able to acknowledge. In other words, you can still be a minority, but your, the way you express yourself towards the other is still within the lens of that uh, old past gone glory and, and, and power. Therefore, there isn't much really, I would say, interest to understand the other. And that is a, a major problem because that actually the sense of superiority, of false superiority, does not allow Muslim leadership to actually unpack the complex challenges we experience. And that was certainly my feeling when I myself ended up in Birmingham way back when I visited the mosques, when I visited the madrasas and the dark rooms, the seminaries, I quickly realized these communities were, in a sense, taken away from very rural areas, subcontinent, implanted in the cities like Birmingham, London, highly multicultural, highly secular, multi-faith, and yet these communities had no religious literacy or other power to actually deal with this context. So I felt that somebody coming from Turkey, where we experienced modernity and modernization over 70 years, these communities are, in a sense, pushed to experience these dynamics over a space of, let us say, 20 or 30 years. So inevitably, there are going to be conflicts, there are going to be problems, but the fact that the faith was not prioritized by the kind of secularly biased politicians was my main problem. So I used to read a lot of literature about the Muslim community. I used to see that always the terms used are ethnicity and, and language difference, but faith was not at all acknowledged. That was pre-9-11, by the way. But I quickly realized when I spoke with the young Muslims that they are the ones who are actually experiencing much more acutely this crisis rather than the first generation. Because the first generation almost knew who they were. 
but the young people who were born in Britain, raised in here, who really are going to make sense of this diversity in their life. And they always made a claim to faith. But I wasn't sure what kind of direction the faith was taking them. That was the story of my actually book, which I brought along. If you have time, you could dip into and look at it. I quickly realized that the mosque, the religious leadership, the kind of Islamic literacy that is passed on is actually a kind of mechanical process of reproducing the same identities borrowed from the subcontinent or somewhere outside Britain. In other words, the Islamic education or Islamic formation was leading into what they discovered very foreclosed mindsets as opposed to exploratory mindsets. And I felt that faith is not really resourcing these young people. But as a Muslim educator and a theologian, I knew that Islam is, is a very powerful faith, has always sponsored diversity and difference, at least historically. And theologically, we have enough resources actually to be able to make sense of the current diversity of faiths and in fact the secular context. But these young people were not given chance to actually converse with their own faith in that creative, imaginative way. So I felt that it is not inevitable that we are only producing foreclosed mindsets within our educational settings, Islamic schools and, and seminaries. So we had to, in a sense, rework out our faith to empower these young people, not to polarize them, not to give them an option of simply developing highly foreclosed, isolated, alienated identities. That was the empirical research I've did, I have done in, in the context of Britain, which I believe that it has told me a lot about policy implications in terms of social cohesion, how do you relate to each other? And obviously, Islam, as we mentioned, not only has got this historical sense of superiority, but the notion of authority in Islam is quite different than the Christian tradition. We don't have neither an individual, apart from if you are Shia, of course, or an institution who, which embodies the religious authority. This, in a sense, is a blessing in disguise. It could be a, a powerful reason for civil diversity and tolerating each other, but it could also be absence of order, absence of actually uh, cohesiveness, and it could actually facilitate, unfortunately, anyone who has some claim to Islam to become a leader, basically. So it's very difficult to, in a sense, bring about a mature sense of religious leadership. And the seminaries and the institutions are actually inculcating this sense of religious authority. I found out they are really operating within the borrowed framework from subcontinent somewhere, which is keep producing really not young faith leaders who can operate within the context of British multicultural civil context. So I had to, in a sense, revisit these this difficult issues for myself as a Muslim educator, and then obviously to offer a, a kind of a way forward. And this is where, obviously, I was very lucky that I managed to stay on after I had done some research in the context of, of, of Kuwait. And incidentally, these issues of 21st century Islam being uncomfortable and producing this reactionary mode of identities is not actually, cannot only be explained with poverty and, and lack of social or economic income. It's actually a mindset that obviously had to be engaged with. And, and therefore, in Kuwait, I found a similar type of highly foreclosed identities nurtured within the very wealthy context of, of the Kuwaiti society. In other words, we have, to, we, we have neglected the duty of rethinking our faith within the context of the modern world. And this is a very difficult task if you do not have obviously resources to do, to do so. But I was lucky that I had the chance last five years to work with uh, the graduates of our seminaries in the UK, and I immediately realized each of these young people are actually exhibiting these very rigid identities of, of being a teacher. And obviously the way they are guiding their congregation is obviously creating these polarized mindsets. 
However, over many years of research, I've really realized if the young people are given a different voice to engage creatively with their faith tradition, it's very possible they could move beyond the foreclosed mindset and actually become quite exploratory, inquisitive, and inquiring, trying to understand the other and actually not seeing any conflict with their own faith. But that requires, in a sense, a long-term educational intervention that, should, that, that has to be carefully crafted within the Islamic faith context and put to, to these young people. And I, I remain hopeful that over my now five, six-year experience, it's a growing number of young people who are actually attracted to this kind of internally critical voice. They want to be part of this journey. And as a result, they actually feel that they could develop uh, exploratory Islamic identities that are actually accommodating, facing with the challenge, and also acknowledging the complex issues that we are facing, not only in terms of education leadership, but in terms of gender issues, human rights issues, and most crucially, the way in which we actually make sense of the others, faith groups, and, and faith traditions. And here we need to empower these young people, in a sense, to not only face issues, but also use creatively the resources that we have in our faith. So this is, I call it, a kind of a long-term educational intervention I myself developed. And I feel that most of the young people I speak, they, in fact, they feel like actually victims. In many ways, they are pushed to, to really either uh, develop a very foreclosed identity nurtured at home at the seminary, or to abandon faith and become probably secular. And I feel passionately that actually they need to be given a third way that you can actually develop a critical Islamic faithfulness. You could be truthful to your faith and also, in a dignified way, be able to actually relate meaningfully to the world around you. And, and this is a task still remaining to be fulfilled, unfortunately. We don't have many uh, models because of the highly charged, politically sensitive context that we are in. And therefore, obviously, uh, in a sense, the policymakers come to these issues quite late in my view. I myself published my original empirical work in Birmingham well before 9-11, and we have actually written at that time to Home Office to actually give us a grant, saying that, look, what's happening to these young Muslim faith leaders? They're a bomb in the making. In fact, all we got at that time was this nice multicultural sort of response that, you know, we are all tolerant and we love each other and that's it. They were not able to follow the dynamics that actually brewing on the, on the ground. And faith was unfortunately was being misused, not only because of the internal identity politics, but also internationally operating forces that obviously have got claims on the agency and identity of Muslim communities in Britain and Europe. So in other words, in a sense, if you cannot really tackle, have a long-term educational policy, it's difficult to carve out a space, a reflective space, where Muslims could, in a sense, develop or indigenize their sense of religious authority. And that is a long-term, in a sense, goal that we really need to work for. And I would like to just close my comment by saying that, obviously, Islam, just like Christianity, although it is a sister tradition, it's the youngest sister tradition, but the advantage of coming after Judaism and Christianity gave Islam a big advantage of actually opening up God's grace to accommodate all. And the Quran is full of interesting comments about the fact that not only we are culturally, ethnically, linguistically diverse, all indicating God's power and glory, but also we have faith differences, that we should always actually not use that to hinder our work for the common good. And the Quran said, in a sense, your theologies should not really block you ideologically not to work with, with each other for the common good. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, is very famous. Before he was actually become a prophet, he used to 
be a member of a committee, committee of the virtues it's called, in, in the Mecca, 7th century Meccan context, set up to protect the visiting tradesmen outside the Mecca. And when he became a prophet, he still actually said that if that committee was active today, I would have no hesitation to be part of it. I.e., he would not actually use his religious ideology, if you like it, to prevent him to become part of a greater good. And I feel these prophetic models, with the openness in the Quran that we have, uh, in terms of seeing diversity not essentially as a suspicious thing, as a negative thing, but diversity as a positive thing, actually, in principle, I feel that we have plenty of resources. All we need to do is to make it sure this actually is communicated, given to young people as an alternative, so that they could become constructively engaging with their own heritage, as well as meaningfully relating to the world around us. Uh, that word in the Quran is called ta'aruf. It's a verse in the Quran. It says that humanity, because of this diversity of ethnicity, language, and religion... What verse are you This is a, a verse, uh, I'll give you the actual exact verse later on, but the word is ta'aruf in Arabic, which means knowing one another. And I'll pass on to you the exact verse. It has escaped me now at the moment. But it says that we have created you uh, in different uh, nations, in different languages and cultures and religions, so that you may have the opportunity of meaningfully relating, knowing one another. In other words, differences actually could be causes for us to be curious about each other, to know one another, rather than dismiss one another. Which is unfortunately, um, I, have to, I should be the first to acknowledge, I teach in an Islamic context in, in Britain, and still in our curriculum, we do not have, for example, a proper provision for teaching Christianity, as Christians believe. We have a lot of discussions about how, what Muslims think Christians do, but we, unfortunately, in 21st century Britain, in an Islamic seminary context, we deny these, deny these young people to actually learn about how Christians believe. That doesn't mean you have to be part of it, but you have to have at least curiosity and interest to find out how these people actually believe in what they believe. Otherwise, we basically replicate this prejudice across generations. So, we, in, in, in many ways, I remain hopeful because I can see young people, young Muslim faith leaders, I work with change, and they are desiring a change. But in a highly politicized context, it's very difficult to become really reflective within the faith. We have to create these reflective spaces, and with the help of, of course, not only you know, Muslims, but non-Muslims as well, we need a lot of help and encouragement to, in a sense, join together to create a, a reflective, faithful space where we could raise these issues with great trust and confidence. And this is the final point. I think what really is at stake is we are about to lose each other's faith. And we, if we lose the faith in each other, we lose confidence. If that is gone, obviously, it becomes, unfortunately, not a cohesive society, but a, a society that competes in dominating each other. This is the story of 21st century and Islam, unfortunately. And we have to reverse this. Faith could sponsor much more meaningful way of relating to each other. It is not all about negativities. And I don't even want to mention about this radicalism and extremism, which has been completely wrongly framed. Radicalism and extremism is, is in a sense, is a human phenomenon, not a really particular faith phenomenon. And I discuss a lot about in my book, about in which how Islam itself differentiates between an extreme faith position vis-a-vis -vis a mature, sensible faith position. And I think young people desperately need this kind of critical space. If they are given this space by the Muslim community, by the wider society, because the responsibility is no longer exclusively to Muslims. We live with each other, we live in the face of each other, as the Quran says, therefore we have to bear ethical responsibility of making an effort 
to meaningfully understand each other, but also meaningfully relate to each other. If you cannot create this context and culture, I think all of these contentious, highly charged issues will remain unresolved. And we'll never be able to, of course, really achieve the peace and, and, and cohesion that we are all longing and, and searching for. And thank you very much for your patience. And hopefully, through the discussion, we'll pick up some of these points. Thank you. Firstly, I think, you know, I, I saw this opportunity to talk about, to help you develop religious literacy. There's a new book out, um, which I think would be a wonderful compliment to Abdullah's book on new directions in Islamic education. That's from within the tradition, mapping out what needs to happen. So we need creative thinkers from within the Muslim community to do just that. But we also need to understand the complexity of Islam in Britain. There's a new book literally out this week, which I've, which I've just read. I think it's excellent. It's accessible. It's by a BBC journalist who's worked on it for seven years, Ines Bowens, called Medina in Birmingham. That's the only title part you need to remember. Medina with an E in Birmingham, Najaf in Brent. And what she does is she maps the ideology, the organisation and the transnational links of key Muslim organisations in this country. And like Abdullah is insisting, it won't do to talk about Muslim communities simply through a deprivationist socio-economic lens. We have to understand the ideology of different Muslim groups which have been imported into Britain. And the difficulty, in many ways, is that still, for young British Muslims, authentic Islam is not here. If you want to find authentic Islam, you go to Egypt, or Pakistan and study there, and often you sit at the feet of converts in America, American converts, say, in Jordan. Now what this means is you're studying Islam in a context outside the West, outside Britain, which does not understand the West. And worse, you can sit at the feet of certain converts who live in the Muslim world and are totally disaffected from the West. So your training, so to say, authentic Islam existing outside of the West is bad news. And this is why I think initiatives like Abdullah's are so important to root <coughs> Islam in a British context and to support those initiatives as an antidote to this kind of authentic Islam exists somewhere else, everywhere else except the West. And then I think the second point I, I would make is, is, what is what in fact Abdullah has been saying to us actually is that in his own research, and I think this is my experience with Imam's religious leaders in, in, in Bradford for 30 years, is they are not trained, they are not developing the skills and competencies in the Islamic seminary to understand, still less to relate to wider society. That's the crisis in religious formation, which someone like Abdullah seeks to address. Medieval texts are being studied in an ahistoric, a-contextual way, and what Abdullah is trying to do is to give young imams the historical and contextual tools to make sense of complex medieval ancient texts and relate them to a complex situation in Western industrial cities. And there's an urgency about that. And at, particularly at the present, I think, where there isn't an ecumenical movement in Islam, what is happening is, in, and I think here is the service of the church and the state, 
what is happening in a way, our geopolitical rivalries across the Muslim world are being played out in Britain. The two most influential TV stations are owned either by the Saudis or the Iranians in Britain. And that begins to make life very difficult for those British Muslims who want to develop a British and distinctive contribution and understanding and expression of Islam. And I think the role of politicians and policymakers in the church is to enable Muslims to not only to have sort of safe spaces, so to say, to debate Islam, but to make sure that actually the diversity in Islam is around the table. Because the Muslim communities often are locked into ethnic and sectarian difference and have not developed those skills of living well with their own diversity. And if I may share an anecdote, I examined a PhD at SOAS recently, and the, the internal examiner, a young anthropologist who had researched the Muslim communities in Pakistan, and that matters for us because most of our, you know, the biggest community in this country is from Pakistan, and 60, 70% of Muslims have roots in Pakistan. And he did research and he asked Pakistanis, educated elites who spoke in English to Urdu speakers, what do you want from education? And they all said Islam plus secular disciplines. But then the next question was, what sort of Islam? And none of them could talk about the internal differences which were tearing Pakistan apart when he was asking those questions. The sectarianism within Pakistani Islam. Now that is a crisis, it seems to me. You cannot talk well about your own internal differences. And so if you don't have robust intra-Muslim relations, interfaith relations are weakened. You need intra-Muslim and intra-Christian relations to enable serious Christian-Muslim relations. So it seems to me, you know, what in fact Abdul is doing is of enormous significance. You know, you need to understand the ideological diversity which in this poem, in Medina, in Birmingham, talks about. But then the next stage is, how do you give a new generation of young Muslim leaders the skills and competencies to help others in Britain relate well to British society and living well as a minority? And I think you know, the aim, I think, hopefully of this morning is to commend, A, I think, in his Bones book, Medina in Birmingham, and indeed Abdullah Shaheen's book, because he's, you know, he's developing a model of an MED program to take the best of the Islamic seminarians and give them the skills and competences without which they will not survive outside of ethnic enclave. And what we've got, and I speak now from one in, in, in Bradford, Unlike parts of London like Brent or even Newark, which are genuinely diverse, many of our northern cities and parts of Birmingham are not diverse at all. They are bicultural. <coughs> and what we've, we've got is an ethno-Muslim enclave within which you don't have a leadership which is equipping these young people to relate well to wider society. And that is deeply worrying. Now, I could conclude, if I may, just on some, there's lots of positive stories, and I could regale you with positive stories about Christian-Muslim relations in my own city. But I think three just little examples of, of this. One, I think, would be the aid agencies. The aid agencies now work collaboratively. Christian aid, CAFOD, and Islamic relief. Shared professionals will work together collaboratively. <coughs> One thing really heartened me in my own city of Bradford is in a crisis in South Asia, we put out a poster signed by Christian Aid, CAFOD, and Islamic Relief, which went into mosques and churches. So those kinds of activities, very important, of active collaboration. Secondly, when there was a crisis in Pakistan and a Christian village was raised to the ground, 
the Bishop of Bradford took a Muslim leader and a friend to Pakistan with him. It was a Pakistani Muslim leader in Bradford who asked the hard questions of the Muslims in Pakistan. What are you doing? Do you know the impact of this on minorities in, in Britain? So this, you know, this pattern of friendship can have a really value. If you model that way of collaboration, it's Muslim friends in that context who can ask the hard questions. And, and I think, you know, thirdly, of course, we've got lots of you know, near neighbours projects which government is supporting in inner cities of, of active collaboration. And I would say to a gathering like this, the main agents of change are young Muslim women. And you can reflect on that. So I think perhaps what we need to do is give plenty of you know, some time for questions now. We just, I hope, opened up a space to talk about some of the difficult issues. Thank you both very much indeed. We have about 15 minutes, so um, perhaps I can ask if you're going to ask a question, can you stand up, tell us who you are, and uh, just have some quick questions and quick, quick answers. Yes. Thank you. Uh, John Innes, a member of the Liberal Democrat Party and Liberal Democrat Christian Forum. Uh, thanks for two excellent talks. Three things very briefly. Uh, Shiites, what proportion of British Muslims are Shiite and affiliated groups? Does what you say about young Muslims apply equally to Shiite Muslims? And then could you enlighten us in a little bit why this vehement hostility between these two main wings of Islam? I know we've had a terrible track record as Christians, Catholic, Protestant. I think finally we see, we're in a much better world today than we were, and it's run over hundreds of years, but what we, what we as Christians fail to understand, why this vehemence? Oh, that's a difficult one to do. Thank you very much for the... Uh, Could you kindly stand up again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, in, from my experience, the formation of this leadership and identity actually even applies, unfortunately, to the Shia branch of Islam that I myself studied in the UK context. Learning that. So, in, in, in other words, within the Madrasa Dalal which is Sunni sort of training, we have Hausa within the Shia tradition, and I have students from both of these actually branches. Uh, this, is where, this is the only place where we actually meet as Sunnis and Shia, by the way, in the context of Birmingham. Uh, Formation takes place with the same dynamics, in a sense, very foreclosed, uh, ahistorical, rather than engaging, really finding documentary voices, replicating the same narrative that borrowed from history of the conflict, of course, between these two branches. Uh, the percentage of court is very, very small. I don't know the exact percentage, but mm -hmm. in this context, is very, very low, the Shia presentation. And, of course, Shia has always been minority within the Sunni-dominating Islamic history. So in, in other words, really the Shia were the minority all the way back. And I think it's a very complex story, of course, <coughs> this conflict and pain to explain. In a sense, it was not simply a kind of a, this ideological difference, but there was a lot of uh, initiative in, in, in the very early stage of Islam of the prophets passing away. Lots, lots of, of course, succession debates took place. And as a result, of course, some of the very close family members Prophet himself, his family, have lost their lives. And they were associated with this grievance, the Shia. Shia basically means the partisan who obviously have loyalty to the Prophet's family. In other words, uh, they always felt that they were very close to the Prophet's family and yet they were deprived subsequently from sharing or expressing their love for the Prophet's, for the prophet's uh, family. So there's a kind of a deep down cultural, historical, as well as political reasons between these. Ongoing, unfortunately. But the current context is much more complex. 
not only is it it's a sect issue no longer between Sunni and Shia in the sense of religious diversity, but there's a politics going on. <coughs> Go, going all the way back to the Western intervention in Iraq, and obviously, today we know it doesn't really matter whether we have supported the war or not. The fact that the, the, the kind of local dynamics, the fake dynamics, once again, were misjudged by unfortunate politicians at that time, because intervention created a huge floodline, basically, of conflict that in a region where they were barely managed. And I don't really know that things were very good at that time. There were oppression, injustice, all the rest of it. But the fact that that region, in a sense, has these default lines, but in a sense, we have to go all the way back to the First World War, the Second World War, where, of course, when the British and the French left, they kind of created these nations, really artificially, basically, boundaries. In other words, it's very complex to understand this, this deep hatred. But it's not only all religious, there is political dimension all the way through. And unfortunately, the West has some, really, in my view, responsibility towards, uh, unfortunately, re-resurrecting that kind of conflict written context. It's very difficult to explain, so I hope that I've conveyed some of the reflections. If I could just give you some statistics. I mean, in this book, Medina uh, in Birmingham, she has the latest statistics on mosques. Of 1,600 plus mosques in Britain, 70 are Shia. Yeah. That gives you a sense, sense of, of yeah, the minority, size. Minority, yeah. And the Shias tend to be more dominant in London than elsewhere. Now, I can see three hands. Let's take the three points and then ask the two panelists to come back on all three of them. This gentleman here, gentleman at the back, and then the gentleman here. Uh, I'm Dan, I'm the Chief Executive of the YMCA in North Staffordshire, and uh, so far I'm trying to have some serious issues regarding um, this, but things have improved, you know. I just want to encourage people. But sometimes we get um, very uh, high in, in reasons and rationale. And it's just a call for us to build relationships that we spent, you know, we have 13 BMP uh, councillors and we've had a massive influx of difficulty from Derby in terms of what might be perceived as, as radical Islam uh, and some sneaked under various ways. The way that that <coughs> began to be resolved, and I'm not saying it's resolved, it's just simple relationships. So I would just to call to keep this very simple. Next week, uh, in one of the breaking of well, in a couple of weeks, breaking of the fast, we've got um, an event where we've got ten Muslim people, ten Christian people, just simply sharing a meal together. And I think sometimes our intellect and our theologies and our political positioning actually is the very thing that divides us. And my call is to, in a city like Stoke-on-Trent, and I take your point, I'm just, um, that actually they are by cities and there are sort of mini colonies in city centres with Pakistani communities for understandable reasons. But I think we have a responsibility to step into space that we might find a little scary and just have a meal with people, have your hair cut in a, in a place. Things such as that, I think, are a simple way forward that are not about power or control or winning, it's just simply about loving our neighbors. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I come from Kenya. Uh, we have interfaith uh, association which brings all the denominations together. Of late, it has become very difficult to agree because we see as if the church is being target, targeted in many places, especially killing them, burning them. A few days ago, eight Christians were killed. 
Uh, immediately that happens, the Muslim leaders comes out to console, to, call, to comfort us, to comfort the church, and to say we are not the one, is the other group is Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab. But we as the stewards of the church, yes, we have criminals in the church, but we condemn them openly. But we have seen uh, Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda saying openly, the heads of Kafiri, that anybody who is not a Muslim must be cut. You Christians, you Muslim scholars, what are you doing uh, to prevent this, especially attacking the holy places? Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I welcome what my friend has said over there about loving Muslims and getting alongside them. That's absolutely right. But the call of scripture is to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And in loving Muslims, that doesn't mean that we can be ignorant of Islam and what the Quran says. You tell us that there's no institution in, um, in authority in Islam. I would suggest that your authority is the Quran. And I don't know any Muslim from any tradition that can say I disagree with the Quran. You've tried to quote to us today from the Quran without mentioning a verse. Um, but you're not being honest about what the Quran says, because you know the Quran says, kill the disbelievers, wage war against those who don't believe in Allah, that's Surah 95, Surah 929, fight against them until there's no more dissension, and also there's no God but Allah, that's Surah 839. My friend here has talked about cutting off heads, that's Surah 47.4, and there's 149 sword verses. And you talk about our sister tradition, but you know that the Quran says Jesus did not die on the cross, which is Surah 4157, but somebody else took his place. And you know also that the Quran says that anyone who believes Jesus is other than a messenger will go to hell. That's Surah 572. Um, and we can go on and on, but we know it says say not three. Anyone that believes in the Trinity is, is, is evil as far as the Quran is concerned. Now, I want you to tell me, I want you to be honest about some of these things and not try and come and pretend that we're all on the same page and we all agree and we're all friends. The reality, you know, is something completely different. Okay. Thank you very much. I'll take one more. Maybe we then ask the panel to come back. Yeah. Jan Sutton, uh, coordinating chaplain for the Centre for Faith and Spirituality at the Free University. I'd like to thank you both for what you said. We're working very to change what has traditionally been a Christian chaplaincy into a centre for all faiths and for none. And we've just celebrated our second uh, faith day where the students are beginning to talk in dialogue and to become friends and to discuss their faith without diluting each other's faith. We're really finding it difficult to find good literature to stop our library. So if possible, if you could spend a few minutes after. So, and, and thank you, because it is about friendship, relationship, and living together in a changing world. Oh, things to have both written books for your library, so I'll come in first. And then, of course, uh, I agree on relationships. We are here as friends. 
And I think, whatever, however polarised our communities become, there is the gift of friendship which can transcend polarisation and must. And we're also here as people who are religiously serious. And so relationships is critical, but, but sooner or later, in terms of friendship, you know, one begins to talk about the difficult questions. Now, those listening attentively to what we were saying this morning, this was not a sentimentalising of, of Christian-Muslim relations. This was talking about difficult issues. Now, of course, there, there are those in both our traditions who say, of course, you can't trust the other ones. They've got a hidden agenda. Of course, there are violent texts in the Quran. There are violent texts in the Bible. Some of the Psalms, for goodness sake, what do we do? We don't use them in worship anymore. Now, Philip Jenkins, a leading American Christian historian, has talked about how the Christian tradition deals with those difficult verses. So all of us have challenges, particularly unlovely verses, which I'm sure many of us as Christians would rather were not in the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly. We follow Jesus. I'm a but, Christian. But, but at the end of the day, we have a complex scripture, which is Old Testament and New Testament. So we all have to deal with our difficult texts. So it's a shared problem, it isn't just for Muslims. Now, of course, if you, you know, we, we wrote some guidelines on Christian-Muslim relations. And what we were saying, one of the critical questions, is how do we speak about each other? What language do we use? Do we dismiss all Muslims as a bunch of deceivers, you know, who are trying to deceive us? Do we talk about Christians, you know, are they all a bunch of, you know, would be Al-Qaeda operatives? Are Christians all fundamentalists? Whatever. So the language we use matters. And so it does matter if a Muslim speaks of us as people of a book rather than kuffar. It matters. Language matters. If we're all dismissed as Christians as a bunch of non-believers, that actually impacts how the Muslim sees us. So language matters. Secondly, history matters. We could, you know, if you choose to, you can select Christian-Muslim relations. It's all negative. It's all horrible. And use history as a weapon against the other. That's the choice. We either use our histories, which are difficult, as a weapon against the other, or we quarry our histories for creative coexistence. That's our choice. How do we use our own history? Now, I would suggest we have to quarry our history for those creative encounters. But that's our choice. We can continue to use our history as a weapon against the other. So, of course, there are difficult verses in the Quran. And I'm sure Abdullah will speak in a moment about that. But I have to remind you, there are difficult verses in the Bible. You know? And so we have a shared problem here. You know? And what, how do we deal with it? What does Jenkins say? How do we deal with it? Historically, we simply ignore those difficult verses. That wouldn't do either. Nor a selective retrieval about these verses. So, Thank you very much. I think uh, when we, the chapter was 30 and verses 19, was it? verse of the Quran. I'll come back to your question later on. 30-19. Yeah. I appreciate, of course, action really speaks more than anything else. And again, from our tradition, uh, the prophetic model has always been, really before theological differences, is to applaud, as I gave the example of the prophet, to be part of a greater good. I think we human beings, we're able to relate meaningfully to each other, despite our differences, in terms of even the way in which we perceive God. In a sense, uh, we should not forget that we are all human beings, basically. And the Prophet, peace upon him, had actually a Jewish neighbor. People always use the history and, and, and textual history in a negative way, but they always tend to ignore other aspects. In, in many ways, we have to really find a balance. And the Prophet used to actually clean this Jewish neighbor's uh, house for her. And he always was proud of that act. 
of generosity, of self-giving. In other words, the Prophet, in a sense, being a Prophet, having Islam, did not prevent him to meaningfully relate to his neighbor. In other words, why don't we kept mention this kind of examples? That doesn't mean we are sentimentalizing the past, idealizing the past, but this is really what faith should be. Faith is essentially its act of giving, act of openness to that which is, of course, beyond us, that encapsulates everything. However we linguistically construe this is a different matter. And the Quran, yes, indeed, it does contain passages, because Quran obviously has produced a society, has produced an empire. Obviously, the text has got a context. In many ways, uh, if we just simply relate to the Quranic text and take this verse where it says, chop off the head of the kafar, isn't it? Be it Muslim or non-Muslim, we are doing a great disservice to this text. Because if you don't have the reflection and patience to understand the context of that verse, which was actually revealed in a war context, by the way, it does not apply to a peace context. All the great Muslim scholars have in, explained this in very detail. That's therefore, of course, today we will basically misuse that verse. Similarly, the Bible is full of, of course, violence. The point is, if you're unable to today have this space and reflection uh, and patience to contextualize this text, obviously, faith will sponsor violence and radicalization. And by the way, it's unfortunate today, of course, Islam has been associated with this act of radical readings and, 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 and extreme expropriation of faith. But this is by no means exclusive to, of course, Islam itself. It's a human phenomenon, and we have to really engage at the human level the causes, the reasons why people insist literally perceiving this truth. Why don't they have the patience to look at the other side? And I was just giving an example to Phil last night, a beautiful book I've just read from a great Jewish scholar. Uh, the book is called The Subversive Sequels in the Bible, which actually looks at from a gender issue to biblical depiction of the woman. And of course she says rightly, the Bible has got so many depictions of the woman's role. Why is it that the most literal minded people today only stick to the negative roles? Why can't they actually put them together to find out a balancing act of the Bible for the gender? In, in other words, literal reading, extremism, are really by no means exclusive to any faith community. It's a human phenomenon, and we engage with this. And here I say, if, we, if as people of faith, we are unable to be reflective of faith tradition, there is no way we can transcend our simplistic depictions of our faith, caricaturizing it. Therefore, it's very difficult to actually relate to each other. And I'm hopeful that obviously that reflective mode not only will obviously be among the Muslim community first, related to their faith, but also the way in which they relate to, of course, the other people. I have no time to explain the whole misuse of the word kufr and kafir in a very derogatory manner, but if you have a patient to unpack it, like what Islam basically means is the peaceful submission, actually kufr originally really etymologically in the Quranic context meant an act of being ungrateful. In other words, within the ethical view of the Quran, and this is not exaggerating this by the way, this is actually proven the Arabic terms. Arabic term for kufr originally meant to be ungrateful. And in a sense, if somebody is unable to acknowledge God's presence within the Quranic worldview, he or she is becoming ungrateful because God gives life. As a result, God deserves to be worshipped. If you are not acknowledging it, the Quran says you are kafir, you are an ungrateful person. Now, I mean, I have to do this exercise with Muslims who have been Muslim for 20 years. It's difficult to expect from a non-Muslim to go through this process. But I think we are living in a time where if we have a genuine interest in the peace, in understanding each other, we have to go through this difficult process of reflecting, thinking, questioning. We have to acknowledge we remain challenged to each other. 
but that should not be leading to any negative consequences. That challenge, as the Quran says, if there is going to be a competition, the competition should be in goodness for humanity, not which faith is better than the other. Theology should not. The Quran says, if you have to compete, compete with goodness. And with this word, I'd like to really thank you for all of you for having us this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. <coughs> there are lots of hands. Unfortunately, I'm afraid I'm going to have to bring our seminar to a close because we've only um, got the hour. I must say, I have a very strong sense we've just begun a discussion here rather than concluding it. But, um, but maybe that we, that we come, come in formal discussion after we've uh, finished. Can I, on your behalf, thank very much